Well, this morning we have the opportunity to delve into God's Word. So thank you for coming to Palm Vista if you're a guest for the very first time, or if you're someone who's come back after many years. Thank you for being here. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you now this incredible series that we have begun in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Today's sermon is from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Please turn there in your Bibles if you need a Bible. We have some in the back. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and the title of this message is True Marriage. True Marriage. This is in our Mark series. This is the scripture that we plan to preach on on this Sunday some nine or ten months ago. And if you know anything about current events, you know that it's quite a Sunday to be preaching on marriage, particularly if you're a resident or a citizen of the United States of America. Jesus, in our context here this morning, as you're turning to Mark chapter 10, is on his way to Jerusalem. He is taking that trip from Capernaum, if we could show the map, to Jerusalem. Capernaum up in the north there, see where it says Galilee? That that was his headquarters for many, many months. And now he's moving to his mission, which is to give his life down at the bottom of the map in Jerusalem. So he's walking with his disciples from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. He's going there to present himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And on the way, somewhere between Galilee down to Jerusalem in Judea, he is being stopped in today's narrative by a bunch of Pharisees, religious leaders, who have no interest in really getting his opinion on marriage. Their interest is to trap him so that they might prosecute him and kill him. But the question they ask him is about marriage. It's actually about divorce. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach us about marriage. Church, do you realize that God has chosen this Sunday to teach us as a church to reinforce to us as a church what true marriage is all about. And God, who is sovereign over all, knew that our Supreme Court would make the ruling they made on Friday. Our God is good. Our God is sovereign over all. And so it's an exciting time for us to be able to study about marriage. It is a hot topic. As I just mentioned, our Supreme Court on Friday decided five to four to redefine marriage. That's what they did. They've been wanting to do that for a long time, and they did it. And they put themselves in direct opposition to what God teaches in his word. And for many Christians, that can be a little unnerving. Oh, church, let me encourage you. A couple of things. The ruling yesterday didn't change these things. You ready? Jesus is alive. No one could put him back in the tomb. Jesus rules and reigns as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Nothing can change that. The gospel, the very message that we're preaching here, the very reason he's going to Jerusalem is powerful and the mission will be accomplished. We are governed by God's word. This is what defines for us marriage. And we will stand with conviction on what God's word says about marriage. But we will do it with compassion. What we want to avoid today are two opposite 
but equally erroneous reactions. The first one is fear, anger, and railing against those who would define marriage differently. Let us not do that, church, for we are Christians, and Jesus went to Jerusalem to give his life for his enemies. So we want to do that. But the other extreme is to capitulate to those who disagree with the biblical definition of marriage. We don't want to do that either. We want to stand in full conviction of God's word and say, here we are, we can do none other. But we want to do it with compassion and love. It's hard, isn't it, church? When things happen like this, when we realize that our laws now go directly against our conscience, if your conscience is informed by God's word, and you realize that someday soon maybe, We may be criminals according to our laws. It's difficult not to react either out of fear or anger. We must resist that. We must respond out of courageous love. Okay, church? And reach out with a conviction. So thank God that he teaches us this morning from his word. Thank God that he is filling us with faith. And I want to pray. I want to pray because I don't know everyone here this morning. There are some guests here. Your conviction may be different from what I'm about to teach from God's word. I pray that God would come with his word and inform your conscience that it might be in agreement with God's very will. And as we do that, we see his kingdom furthered. We see his gospel mission accomplished. In faithful people who have conviction, have compassion, who are willing to give their lives, as Corey mentioned, many, many are doing today in other countries for the sake of the gospel. We're on this gospel trail, aren't we? Show the map again. This, this, this gospel trail from Capernaum to Jerusalem, what some scholars call the discipleship chronicles. We, we are walking with Jesus on this path of true discipleship. And in Capernaum, actually a little bit north of Capernaum, in Bethsaida, he said this, if you want to follow me, you do what? What's true discipleship? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then when they were arguing about which one of them was better in Capernaum, in Peter's house, he turned to them and says, listen, you want to be first? Then you need to be last. And servant of all. And so we're on this great trail of true discipleship. Talking about true marriage. Down through the centuries. 2,000 years later, we are walking that trail. We're following our Lord who went to give his life for his enemies. We were God's enemies. And Jesus gave his life for us. May we love our enemies, by giving our lives for them as we stand on God's truth and offer God's salvation. Jesus came saying this, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. We're going to now teach what the Bible says about marriage. Those who would not agree with that, we say what God says, repent, believe, that you might have life. I want to pray that this would gain traction in your minds. This would gain traction in your hearts. No matter what other churches may say, no matter what our Supreme Court says, God is the one as creator who defines marriage. And may we say yes and amen to that. 
So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you walked that discipleship trail from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. You knew that you were walking that trail to give your life for your people, your elect, who were fast bound in darkness. Many of those Pharisees in this text this morning who wanted to catch you and to kill you. We know that they were the very ones, your elect, that you saved. There were priests that were saved. There were Pharisees that were saved. Uh, Paul, those who would kill you and your people, but were your elect, you had chosen. And you died for them while they were still your enemies. And we're in that number. So may we have that attitude, Lord, as we speak your truth. May it gain traction in our hearts and minds. Lord, help me to preach it with your anointing. Build your church, for the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read, church, what the Bible says about marriage. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there, Capernaum, on the map, and went to the region of Judea. So he's heading southward now toward Judea. Beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let not Man separates. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what is true marriage? Well, Jesus is being asked that question indirectly. You see, the Pharisees in the first century wanted to keep divorce easy. Something you might not know, but in Judaism in the first century, there were two schools concerning divorce. The school that was very conservative, that said you can only divorce in the case of adultery, marital infidelity. And the other school that was much more liberal that said, no, you can divorce for whatever reason. If she doesn't cook well, if you don't like the way she looks, you can divorce her. And people wanted to keep it that way. The Pharisees wanted to keep it that way. As a matter of fact, if you look on the map here, Jesus is walking through this section here where a king, a puppet king, a Jewish puppet king who'd been put over the Jews by the Romans was ruling. His name was Herod. And just a little while earlier, Herod, who had divorced his wife and married a younger woman, Herodias, had been challenged on that by John the Baptist. And at a dinner, 
his, his daughter danced so beautifully that he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And his daughter, stepdaughter, because her mom said to, for her to ask for this, said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Because she was mad that John the Baptist had called Herod on the fact that he divorced his wife to marry this younger woman. And Herod had to behead John the Baptist. And it was all according to God's will. And so what they were hoping is either A, to get Jesus to say something about marriage like John the Baptist and Herod to find out about it and Herod would take care of Jesus. Or B, they were hoping to trap Jesus that he would say something against the law, against the Torah. So look in our text. What does Jesus do? They ask about divorce in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does Jesus do? What he often does when he's asked a question by people who are not interested in his answer. They're just interested in trapping him. He asks them a question. All right? He says to them in verse 3, What did Moses command you? Verse 4, they're going back and forth here. They said, well, Moses allowed, and they're about to talk concerning Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, they're going to quote that or they're going to reference that. And they're saying, well, Moses said that a man is, is, is able to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, they're thinking for any reason at all. Jesus now is wanting to go to the heart of the matter. He's going to take this opportunity to teach them about divorce. And where does he go to teach them about divorce? Where we should go to teach about marriage. Where does he go to teach about marriage? Where we should go to teach about marriage. Where the Supreme Court should have gone to teach about marriage. To creation. Jesus is about to go to creation order. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus says to them, yes, Moses wrote that there is um, an opportunity for you to divorce in the case of adultery, but he did it because of the hardness of your heart. But now, verse 6, I'm going to go and define for you marriage. I'm going to go to the very basic starting point of this whole thing, to the creator, who is the one who created marriage. And that's what he does in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What Jesus is doing here is something very important. I want to teach you to do it, church. I want to teach you how to read your Bibles. See, the Pharisees are going to Deuteronomy to try to trap Jesus concerning when you can divorce. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to interpret Deuteronomy for you using Scripture. The fancy term is the analogy of Scripture. Okay? In plain speak, Jesus is going to use scripture to interpret scripture. So Jesus goes to Genesis, the creation account, to interpret Deuteronomy, what Moses wrote. Both of these, by the way, were written by Moses about 1500 BC. So 1500 years later, Jesus is going to interpret what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24 by the creation account that Moses wrote in Genesis 2, because in those 1,500 years, there were a lot of different opinions about divorce, but what Jesus is ultimately doing here is he's giving us a definition of true marriage. He goes to the fact that God created marriage, point one. God's creation of marriage. To understand what true marriage is, we've got to go to the creator of marriage. I want you to look at verses 7 and 8 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus says the following, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Jesus in Mark 10, 7 through 8, is quoting 
Genesis 2, 24, as you can see on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. If you can go back. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and he says, this is what marriage is all about. So we must go to that Old Testament reference of marriage and to understand what marriage is all about. And when we go back to Genesis 2, we find in verse 18 that God created marriage for companionship and he created the woman to be a helper fit for the man so that the woman orients herself to her husband. Man and and, and woman are created equal But the man is created first and the woman is created to orient her life to him, submit to him, and he is created to care for her and love her. This is the Christian doctrine of submission in marriage. And it comes from Genesis 2.18. Not from culture, not from some patriarchal culture. It comes from creation, creation ordinance. And that's what we see in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So he created marriage for companionship. It's not good to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage was God's idea. Next, in verses 21 to 23 of Genesis 2, we learn that God created marriage between one man and one woman, with the man exercising this benevolent headship over his wife. Verse 21 of Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The man named the woman, which identifies headship over her. Because she was taken out of man. Notice, he created out of Adam's rib a woman, not a man. This is God's creation ordinance. This is God's creation order. And then finally, we see in verses 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. You always have to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, I'll tell you what it's there for. It's there to give us the consequence of saying God created marriage, it was his idea, for companionship, it's not good for the man to be alone, to make a helper fit for him, this is the woman orienting her life to the man, and he took a rib out of the man's side and created a woman, different body parts, that God established at creation, and he brought them together. Now here's the beauty of it, verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. You ever ask yourself this question? Who was... Adam's father and mother? (laughs) He didn't have any. It's a trick question. So why does he say this at creation? Because he's thinking of us. The rest of us have fathers and mothers. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Friends, this verse is a key verse, verse 24, to defining marriage. It's the verse that Jesus chose to quote in Mark chapter 10 when he's answering the Pharisees. Later in this sermon, we're going to see it's the verse that Paul chooses to quote when he gives us God's design for marriage in Ephesians 5. And he goes on to say in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God created marriage 
for the husband and the wife to have a place where they are one flesh. They have true intimacy. They share everything, their lives, their friendship, their companionship, their very being at their essence, their core values. It's the place where they can be safe. They can be naked and unashamed. A place of loving acceptance, a place of peace and joy. Great, Al. So why do we not experience that today? Why is there a 50% divorce rate today? Why in the last year have two prominent pastors in Broward County, well-known national figures, experienced sad and heartbreaking dissolving of their marriages, stepping down from their ministry? If that is true, Al, if this is how God made marriage, why isn't it working out in my marriage today? We're not experiencing a safe place where we're able to be naked and unashamed. We're fighting all the time. There's a lack of unity. One flesh, we haven't been intimate for months. And we don't want to be. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. The answer is found in chapter 3. No time to go there. But in chapter 3, paradise is lost. In chapter 3, man chooses to go his own way. Man chooses to define marriage his way rather than God's. He says, you know what? I want that, even though you said I can't have that. And they rebel against God. And as a result, God, because he's righteous, God, because he keeps his word, God says, I must judge that rebellion. And in Genesis 3.15, We see God's judgment. But what I want you to see is that God's judgment in Genesis 3.15, within that judgment is contained the very salvation, the very reason that Jesus is going from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Jesus is going from Capernaum to Jerusalem to fulfill this text, to fulfill what God promised at creation in the context of marriage. This is what God said, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity, fighting. God picked this fight. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And that word offspring is in the singular. He wasn't talking about mankind. He was talking about one man, one savior, one Messiah, the one from whom this entire Bible takes its story. It's the story of this offspring from the beginning to the end. It's the Messiah promised to Israel. It's Jesus who came as the Messiah to give his life. He shall bruise your head. On the cross, Jesus bruised Satan's head. On the cross, he made a show of Satan openly. On the cross, he took the penalty for our sin, the curse that we're about to examine in just a moment, the reason why your marriage isn't as happy as you would like it to be. And you will bruise his heel. Oh yes, Jesus' heel was bruised. Jesus died. Jesus suffered. Jesus was naked on the cross and shamed. His heel was certainly bruised. But oh friends, three days later, he rose from the dead defeating sin and Satan and reversing the curse. What curse, you ask? Verse 16. Here's the reason why our marriages are not happy. What I love is God gave us the hope and the solution for the curse first. That's verse 15. Verse 15 is my hope in my marriage. Verse 15 is what Jesus came to accomplish. 
But verse 16 is the reality that we often live in. And if you are not a believer here this morning, it's the reality you have no choice but to live in. If you're a believer, you have a choice, but sometimes your flesh doesn't let you live in it or you choose not to live in it. But if you're not a believer, friend, if verse 15, Jesus isn't your savior, then you're stuck in the acrimony, the conflict. But if you're a believer, verse 16, this curse I'm about to read has been overcome by Christ and you can live in a marriage that reflects more of paradise than it does of the fall. But here's the curse, friends. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. But here's the deal. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire there is not a good thing. It's the same word desire that is used in Genesis chapter 4. When God says to Cain, you better repent because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It's going to jump out and oppose you. It's trying to come against you. So the curse on every wife from the fall, from original sin, is to oppose her husband's leadership. Men, take that into account when you feel opposition. It is how the curse affected your wife. Now, if she is saved and she is in Christ, then Christ has given her a new creation. But there's still the flesh there. And at times, we all give in to the flesh, don't we? And there's your 50% divorce rate. But men, we were cursed as well. It says there that we would be cursed with this selfish ruling over our wives. That is not a good word. That's the word that is used when the enemies of Israel would come and they would rule harshly, like the Philistines would come and rule harshly over Israel. So we're cursed with being selfish, harsh, distant. So ladies, that's how the curse has affected us. And though we are new creations, if we are Christians, there are times we give in to that. Here's the good news. The hope that we have is this savior who's walking from Capernaum down to Jerusalem, who's telling the Pharisees that the true marriage is defined by creation order, not by what you say. Who would give his life on the cross that he might reverse the curse of the garden, that he might bring us back together, that we might fulfill God's design on marriage. And that's point two. Since God created marriage... He is the one that gives it its design, its purpose. And what is that design? Well, we've got to go back. The clues are found in this wonderful verse that Jesus quoted in Mark 10, 7 and 8, that he quoted from Genesis 2, 24, and that Paul will use in Ephesians 5, 31. Let's look first at the quotes. Remember Jesus, when he's answering the question about divorce, he quotes Genesis 2.24 and Mark 10.7 and 8. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. We know that he quoted from Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, uh, but, so what's the design of marriage? I know that marriage is created by God for companionship. I know he, it's created by God between one man and one woman. I know that it's created by God for, for this one flesh unity. But what's the ultimate design? Well, we've got to go to Paul. We've got to go to where the Apostle Paul quotes the same verse. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 on the screen. Paul, talking about marriage, is now going to give us God's design for marriage. 
Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis 2, 24. This mystery is profound. Yes, it is, Paul. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, man, woman, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's going back to creation. Paul, define marriage for me. Paul, how does the gospel work in marriage? Paul, how is the gospel applied to my marriage? Well, let me start with creation, dear Christian friend. He's writing to Gentiles here primarily. And let me remind you of what the Jewish scriptures, what the word of God says, that God created the male and female to be one flesh. And the way that is applied is that it was meant to be, and here it is, folks, if you, know, if you hear nothing else, listen to this. It was meant to be a picture of redemption. What? Yes. Paul says it here. It's a mystery. It's a profound mystery, verse 32. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, but wait a second. God spoke those words in Genesis 2.24 before the fall, before the promise of Genesis 3.15. I know. It's a mystery. Paul himself says it. But he had in his heart what he already had in vision was a picture of Christ, that seed of the woman who would come and give his life for his people, the church, his elect, and the church responding to Christ in repentance and faith and submission. And he's saying, listen, marriage was created to reflect that. Don't you understand? That's why it's under such attack right now. The attack is on God and his image. That helps me not take it personally. Particularly when it comes from someone that doesn't know God. The purpose, the design for marriage is to reveal Christ and the church. Yes, we enjoy the companionship. Yes, we enjoy the one flesh physical union that produces offspring so that we can populate the world and exercise God's dominion over the world by God's grace. Yes, that is all true, but ultimately what it is doing is it is saying Jesus came and gave his life for his bride, his people. So there's no time to go through it, but if you read Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, you will see where it says to husbands, we're to love our wives that way. We're to lay down our lives for our wives. We're not to domineer them and rule over them harshly and tell them to do what we say no matter what and demand from them. No, we're to self-sacrificially lay our lives down for them. We're still the head. We're not abdicating our leadership. But the way we do it is the way Christ gave himself for us. And it says to the woman... That this act of submission is, is reflecting the church's submission to Christ. And you're doing it to God. You're trusting God. And as you do that, you're reflecting the beauty of the gospel. Boy, does that give meaning. Jesus would never, never abandon his chosen people, his elect. And that is why, that is why, Jesus, back to Mark chapter 10, says and concludes his teaching with these words in Mark 10, 9. You can show that on the screen. What God has joined together, let not 
man separate. He gives him the Old Testament quote, and then he says, listen, for that reason, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And Matthew, in the parallel account of this, says it this way, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus talking, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You Pharisees want to find every reason to divorce your wife because you're selfish. You just want it, and you're trying to trap me. I'm going to just go right around that question, and right around your purpose to get me, and to to imprison me, I will give my life soon enough, but not today. And let me teach you, God's will is that what he has brought together, no man should separate. Oh, friends, this is God's will for marriage. I love the quote in the ESV study Bible in giving us understanding of this. It says this, Jesus avoids the Pharisaic argument about reasons for divorce and goes back to the beginning of creation to demonstrate God's intention for the institution of marriage. It is to be a permanent bond between a man and a woman that joins them into a new union that is consecrated by physical intercourse. There's, There's true marriage. Now sadly, because of our sinfulness, I do believe that biblically there are Two instances where divorce and remarriage are authorized. In the Matthew passage, it tells us adultery. And when you go to Romans 7, which we will not have time to do this morning, or, and 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment or desertion by an unbelieving spouse. I do believe those are the two instances where divorce is allowed. But hear God's heart, even there, even in adultery, God's heart, God's instance, God's purpose is that the gospel would bring reconciliation, that the two who've been made one would not be separated. How does this apply to us? Well, here it is. God created your marriage and marriage to bless you, that you might have a companion that you might reflect your union, the two of you, might reflect Christ in the church. You're to be a living testimony of God's love for his elect and his elect's submission to God. I can think of no greater purpose for your life, for this story is the story of redemption. Now I understand for some of you, you may not be experiencing that in your marriage. I get that. Because the curse is still real, isn't it? You're still a human being. You're still tempted, perhaps even giving in to some temptations. Whether ladies to resist, men to be harsh or distant. I get that. But here's your hope. Jesus died on the cross and took that curse to give you the blessing. And he died to give you hope that your marriage might glorify God. He rose from the dead and lives today to give us that hope. And my prayer for you is that you might experience that. Because the gospel is powerful. I don't need to be worried about what a Supreme Court says or anybody else says. God is sovereign. And his will is being done. And so I want to pray for marriages right now. If you're here with your spouse, I'd like to ask you to do something. Just, would you just hold their hand right now as I pray for you? Your marriage is under attack. It's a cosmic attack against God 
And you as a Christian couple, particularly as a Christian couple, stand in the crosshairs. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who defeated Satan is in front of you. He's not behind you. He's in front of you. His victory is your victory. His power is your power. His grace is your grace. And I want to pray for that grace in your marriage right now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would please pour out your grace upon my friends this morning. Lord, marriages in this room that are in varying degrees of health. Some are very healthy, but we're all still in the crosshairs. Some are moderately healthy, and some right now are really unhealthy. There may be some in this room that have been secretly thinking, I'm done. It's over. Lord, would you come and give fresh hope? May your grace come flooding down from heaven and give hope that you died on the cross to reverse the curse. You were cursed that we might be blessed. I bless the marriages at Palm Vista Community Church in Jesus' name. The blessing that nothing, nothing can stop. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. And give us joy, Lord. Lord, I pray for our culture. I pray for the United States of America. As the highest court in our culture has thumbed its nose at you. Has shaken its fist at you. Lord, forgive us. We stand as your people. Like Abraham stood and interceded. We stand as your prophets. As Jonah stood and prophesied. We stand as your prophets. Lord, it does not matter what happens to us. We declare your grace and your salvation to those, your people, who would repent and believe. Lord, I pray for your people that we would not panic. We would not react in fear or anger. But we would respond with the gospel. We are not moved by our enemies, for you are sovereign. You are faithful. You never change, Lord. Great is your faithfulness. I just want to pause for a moment as your eyes are closed, as you're praying. Um, I just want to pray for you if you are experiencing any level of the following. Number one, Hopelessness in your marriage. You feel trapped. I just want to pray God's hope in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, repent and believe in him. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you want to pray, I'm going to be down here praying for you. Corey Smidgen will be here praying for you. You just come forward and we'll pray for you. Secondly, I want to pray for those right now who are who are experiencing significant um, nervousness, anxiety, fear, maybe anger about the Supreme Court decision. I want to pray that God refocus your eyes away from man and on to him who is the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords. God, the creator of marriage, defines marriage. And we say yes and amen to your definition, Lord. And I pray faith in their hearts.
Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing of God's great faithfulness. Everything else changes but God. Let us declare that. Corey and I are going to be here. If you need prayer, ask you to come down. If you need to repent and believe, I'm asking you right now. I'm calling you as God would